Welcome to the Aspen Chapel podcast with Nicholas and Heather Vesey. Great. Thank you very much indeed, guys. That was wonderful. Thank you. So it's Valentine's Day, and uh, historical archives make mention of at least three different individuals who are credited with the name of Valentine. All three were martyred for their faith, uh, having been recognised by the church. It's a bit of a history lesson here, Valentine's Day. It started with the Roman Empire, and in ancient Rome, February the 14th was a holiday in honour of Juno. So here again, Christians who are taking pagan holidays. Juno was the queen of the Roman gods and goddesses, and the Romans also knew her as the goddess of women and marriage. Uh, the following day, February the 15th, began the Feast of Luperclia. Uh, the lives of young boys and girls in those times were strictly regulated. However, one of the customs for young people was drawing names from a hat. And on the eve of the festival, the names of the Roman girls were written on slips of paper and placed in jars. Each young man would then draw a girl's name from the jar and then we'd be partners for the duration of the festival with the girl that he chose. And sometimes the pairing of children lasted a year and often they'd fall in love and later marry. Now, under the rule of Emperor Claudius II, Rome was involved in many bloody and unpopular campaigns. And Claudius the Cruel was having a difficult time getting soldiers to join the military leagues. Uh, he believed that the reason for this was that Roman men didn't want to leave their loved ones. And as a result, he cancelled all marriages and engagements in Rome. And the good St. Valentine, a priest in Rome in the days of Claudius II, he and St. Marius aided the Christian martyrs and secretly married couples. And for this kind deed, St. Valentine was apprehended and dragged before the of Rome, who was condemned to be beaten to death with clubs and to have his head cut off. And he suffered martyrdom again on the 14th of February, 270 AD. And the feast of St. Valentine was established by Pope Galatius I in 496 AD, and he celebrated uh, St. Valentine's Day on February the 14th. And it became associated with love in the 14th and 15th centuries when the whole idea of courtly love emerged. And, uh, uh, you know, apparently it was associated with lovebirds in early spring. Good history lesson this. In the 18th century, it grew into an occasion in which couples expressed their love for each other by presenting flowers and offering confectionery and greeting cards known as Valentine's. And it's interesting that, you know, I'm English, and Valentine's Day in England is, is celebrated differently to what it is here. In England, it's an opportunity to declare love. When you sort of like somebody, you send them a Valentine's card with your declaration. But the tradition is that it's anonymous. So on the one hand, you send your card to someone that you fancy without signing it. And on the other, you receive a card, but the mystery is who sent it. And there's always a great kudos in the number of Valentine cards uh, people receive. And then the, the, the uh, you know, uh, obligatory cards 
sense to establish partners. Uh, you have to send a card, and if you don't, uh, it's seen as tantamount to missing an anniversary. Uh, and of course, you know, restaurants and the flower trade make hay with Valentine's Day. And according to market research uh, from Ibis World, Valentine's Day sales around the world account for $17 billion. So it's a huge amount. You know, over here, it seems that everyone gets cards and candy. Uh, but in the end, the deeper intention is the same. It is an expression of love. And that has to, I think, to be our, our theme for today. But it's interesting that both, all three of the supposed St. Valentines ended up giving their lives for that love. So we have to include that element of sacrifice as well. Now, the definition of love that I most like to use, we use here in the, in the chapel most of all, is love is giving with no expectation of return. So that definition of love as giving with no expectation of return. You give of yourself and you don't expect anything back in return, which is actually the definition of a non-profit. You don't make a profit, you just serve. So often, you know, in our lives though, things are done for ulterior motives. So much of our lives are a bargain. I'll do this for you if you do this for me. <clears throat> Work, friendship, even so-called love relationships sometimes have an element of bargaining about them. The trouble is that when the bargain can no longer be met, then the relationships break down. I'll be your friend if you agree with me. I will love you, I will love you if you keep me in the style that I'm accustomed. We even bargain with God. I will worship you as long as you keep me safe and happy. Our whole culture is really predicated on that bargaining. Politics, alliances, business, community, even art. We bargain for what we want. And woe betide it if you don't live up to the bargain, which is why so many marriages break up, why friends turn against each other. You voted for who? You scratch my back and I will scratch yours. But if you can't get rid of my itch, then I'll go and find somebody else. And so we have to look at our lives and see what's bargaining and what's real loving. What are we expecting in return for the good works, in return for loving others, in return for our charity? What is the price of our giving? When we're disappointed in people, does it really mean that they've not lived up to the expectations we have of them and therefore when they fail, we will withdraw our love? When our partners don't satisfy our every want and need, does that mean that we're no longer compatible, that we have grown apart and that we are living different lives? In reality, the bargain at the center of the relationship is exposed. And without that bargain, the love is withdrawn. It even happens with our children. When they don't live up to the expectations that we have of them, we withdraw from them in some way because 
they're not fulfilling their side of the bargain. So I think, you know, on Valentine's Day, we do have to take a serious inventory of our lives and see when we're really being loving and when we're actually fulfilling a bargain, one that doesn't expect a return. But the Bible is very clear about love. You know, 1 Corinthians 13 is the clearest definition of love. You know, everyone knows it. If I speak in the tongues of men and angels, but do not have love, I am as a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy and can fathom all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have faith that can move mountains, but do not have love, I am nothing. If I give all that I possess to the poor and give my body to hardship that I may boast, but do not have love, I gain nothing. So to have love is the the key component of the spiritual love, above everything else, knowledge, miraculous works, even charity. And then it goes on to say what love is. Love is patient. Love is kind. It does not envy, it does not boast, it is not proud, it does not dishonour others, it is not self-seeking, it is not easily angered, it keeps no record of wrongs. Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices in the truth. It always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. Love never fails. And there's the description of the self-giving nature of love. You know, love is patient. There's a sense of endless giving there, of not hurrying things up, of just keeping on keeping on, no matter how long it takes, the willingness to feel pain and to give of ourselves over an extended period without withdrawing. Love is kind, from the word kin, meaning of the same kind, seeing others as ourselves and treating them the same way, loving our neighbours as ourselves. Love does not envy. It doesn't begrudge others what they have. It doesn't create enmity on the basis of what others have. Love does not boast. There's no excessive pride and self-satisfaction. It is not proud. It doesn't have an inflated opinion of one's own worth. It doesn't dishonor others. It doesn't deprive people of honor. It is not self-seeking, not easily angered. It keeps no record of wrongs. It does not delight in evil, but rejoices in the truth. It always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. Love never fails. It is a fundamentally giving nature that upholds goodness in all that's around. It is a celebration of the existence of the majesty all around that we talked about last week, being at oneness with all and celebrating that from our own inner intactness, our own inner integrity. And then the verses go on to talk about the primacy of love. But where there is prophecies, they will cease. Where there is tongues, they will be stilled. Where there is knowledge, it will pass away. Everything else is less important. For we know in part and we prophesy in part, but when completeness comes, what is part disappears. 
When we realize the majesty within and the majesty without, then we'll see the place of love in all things. And then when I was a child, I taught like a child. Now we see only as a reflection in the mirror. We may not see the whys and wherefores of our love to understand what the impact is or how we fit into the grand design of such things. Because as it says in the Psalms, such knowledge is too wonderful for us. There'll be a realization at some point, but that is something we don't have at the moment. We have to give without a knowledge of the return. And now these things remain, faith, hope, and love, but the greatest of these is love. To love is the greatest power that we have in our being. It is truly transformatory. And we're asked to use it as a duty to our having been given the gift of life. And by loving, we are made holy. It is a sacrifice. It's our sacrifice. From those two words, sacre ficio, sacrifice made holy. You are made holy by loving. And you know, when we love, we're part of the great purposes of the universe. The language of the universe, of everything, is love. The fundamental language of the universe is love. The universe was given with no expectation of return, as were our own lives. There was no bargain in us being given life. We were given our lives, again, with no expectation of return. Which is why the Bible says that God is love. It's because the cause of everything, plants, animals, us, all, everything is given with no expectation of return. The cause of life is something given with no expectation of return. In other words, the whole cause of life is love. What we call God is love. So to participate with the universe in a true sense is to become that love ourselves. And when we do that, we become one with that divine urge of creativity, to become one with what we call God. To love is to become one with the force that created everything. We become part of that creative force and to become a part of the evolution of all things into the perfection towards which we travel, to that point where all things recognize themselves in each other and where we call Conscious, what we call consciousness experiences itself as being one with the divine. And that's all well and good. But today is not only Valentine's Day, it's also the Feast of the Transfiguration. That moment where Jesus took his key disciples up the mountain and he showed them his true nature in love. Jesus took with him Peter, James and John and led them up to a high mountain by themselves and his clothes became dazzling white and there appeared with him Elijah and Moses. And Peter said, Rabbi, it is good for us to be here. Let us make three dwellings. And a cloud overshadowed them and said, this is my beloved son. Listen to him. Here in this passage, Jesus is manifesting that divine love for his disciples by showing them who he really is. He's revealing and expressing that divine love within himself. And in doing so, 
he's expressing the highest love that he was capable of. And it's interesting, he takes them up a mountain. And when you go up a mountain in the Bible, it's code for, I'm going to give you a spiritual experience. That's what it says. Moses went up mountains, Elijah. Every time there's a spiritual experience, they go up a mountain. So he takes them up a mountain. He was transfigured, literally trans across figure a figure. His form changed and he showed himself as a spiritual being that he was. And alongside him, there was Moses and Eliza representing the wisdom of all the ages. Jesus was giving himself, giving his disciples a glimpse of the true nature of love. And he was giving them a glimpse of two of the, the true nature of the manifestation of humanity. And it sent his disciples mad. Rabbi, it's good for us to be here. Let us make three dwellings, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. He did not know what to say, for they were terrified. And when we look at the true nature of love, we actually see that transformation of who we are. When someone really is loving, they are transformed. And it can be scary to see that because it's not rational. It's not what the mind expects. The fact is that if you look at people like Gandhi and Mother Teresa, they're scary people. And when people amongst us express love, they can be scary too because it, you know, it's not a rational thing, which is why in our lives, as it says in that passage, we can only see as a reflection in the mirror. Or as King James Version says, more pointedly, we can only see through a glass darkly. Love isn't rational. It scrambles the mind so as to open the heart. We can only take so much of it. And after that, we feel the need to attack because it seems that our mind is becoming confused, which is why Jesus was crucified. The mind cannot take too much scrambling. It has to survive. And it is the mind, in the mind, that love has to be fostered. Thomas Merton defines faith as intellectual assent. In other words, for whatever reason, the mind gives up to the heart and allows the heart to take over. How much love we're able to show depends on how much assent the mind will give to the heart. A bargain is very guarded assent. Unconditional love with no expectation of return is likely to send the mind into the sort of spin that the transfiguration did for the disciples. It brings on fear and madness. We feel threatened by it in ourselves and in others. And we have to look at that fear and we have to counter it with as much intellectual assent as we can. Only then will we be able to see the bargains that we've made in our lives and transform them into loving relationships. How much love can you take? When does your mind say, enough, I'm not giving anymore? Those three St. Valentines, whoever they were, gave their lives that we might have this little piece of love in perpetuity. What can we give that will pass on our love to future generations? Thank you. Yeah, I think one of the things that really strikes me is the is the conditionality of love. 
I mean, we, we, we really do, you know, there's a, we will give and give and give, but there's a certain point where we think, no, you know, I'm not, no more, please. You know, we become, I, I hate that phrase, I'm very disappointed with you, you know, suddenly. And love is then withdrawn. You know, when we make some mistake or something goes wrong, it's a, it's a terrible thing when suddenly there's that coldness where previously there was love or whatever. Yeah, well, and, and um, isn't it interesting to, to look at our lives and to consider our, our relationships and the extent to which our different loves and our loving ability is, is based on bargaining or, or if it really is true love? Like, how much are we actually really, truly loving? Yeah. Um, and maybe may when we do find ourselves pulling back, um, coming to the end of what we can do, maybe that's an indication that it's kind of based on, you know, that we are in the bargaining um, level of consciousness in a way, yes. maybe. Yeah, I think that, that it, it doesn't mean to say that we condone, you know, bad behaviour or whatever it is, but I think the whole thing is to remain open in that state. You're open and available and willing to, to communicate and be a part of that, and that your attitude is fundamental loving, you know. And this whole thing of cancel culture that, that's being talked about a lot in the media at the moment, you know, that is an element of bargaining as well. There is an element, I'm not willing to participate with you on this particular level. Yeah, you know, I, I feel like we, we're so quick to come to the end of our capacity. We think we can't love anymore. We come yeah. to the end of our capacity. But... There's always more, like the wellspring of love doesn't run dry. Yeah. There's always more loving to be done and, and more loving that more love that we can access and realize in our lives. And um and again that's where practice comes in, isn't it? Is is it's choosing, as I said right at the beginning of the service, it's choosing to to cultivate that that lovingness. There's always more. Like there's no limit. Yeah. If we're willing, if we're we're just willing to do it, you know. And it's about priorities. Because if your priority is not to love, um, I'm not saying that, you know, not not, not, not to love, but if, you're pri- if, you, if your priority is not love, then you will operate to those other priorities, which may be about well-being or whatever it is. Yeah. But if your priority is to love, if you tell the truth about that and say, right, my priority is to love, then th- there, is not, there is no let or hindrance to that. You have to recognize that as your priority. And in engaging in the spiritual life, then I think our priority has to be love. And when we go into Lent next week, we're going to talk a little bit more about this, but it's the priority that we give it. So the fundamental priority in life, if it's your spiritual life, is about love. And therefore, you have to be willing to go to that. Yeah, and it's about context, isn't it? Like, I hope this isn't too yeah. pers- personal to say this, but like with you and me, there's a, there's a, it's not just about our, our needs being met. There's a, there's a greater context, yeah. isn't it? It's like our commitment to to love within which we exist and have our marriage. You know what I mean? So yeah. that, that, that's so helpful to me. There's just a much bigger context. Yeah. Um, and one other thought. Uh, I thought of a line in, in a William Blake um, poem, which I'm now struggling to remember, but it's something about our capacity to bear the beams of love. Like sometimes, as you were saying, love can be so, it's so much, it's so scary. At some point, like, can we stretch? Can we stretch enough? Um, and expand enough to bear the beams of love. Yeah. And um, for what you're saying, love is then marriage to life. Yeah, exactly. You're married to life, in a sense, and that you have that great context of love yeah. in your life. But I think it's always important to say that is a scary thing as well. You know, when you see people 
who are fundamentally loving, they can act in a very scary way. I mean, look at Zen masters. You know, they can act in an extremely scary way, but fundamentally they're about love. And I think what's interesting about the transfiguration is that they were terrified, the disciples, because he just opened himself completely and showed himself in that love. Um, and I think we have to be aware that, that, you know, fear does come into that. Well, where it exposes us, doesn't it? Yeah. And, and, and also one other thing is yeah. I, I, um, <laughs> I came across this poem the other day by Hafiz, which is, I find... By who? Hafiz, the, the Hafiz. Sufi poet Hafiz. Yeah. And um, this is, to me, really funny, but just so true. Um, it's called With That Moon Language. Admit something. <laughs> Everyone you see you say to them, love me. Of course, you do not do this out loud, otherwise someone would call the cops. Still, though, think about this, this great pull in us to connect. Why not become the one who lives with a full moon in each eye that is always saying with that sweet moon language what every other eye in this world is dying to hear? It's, lovely. it's like we all, everyone we come across, we all just want love. That's all. And if we could... Take the responsibility of, of um, digging deep into that, you know, into the wellspring of love ourselves so that we can be the, you know, we can be giving out that love. There's just ample love available. Yeah, that's lovely. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Thanks for listening. If you feel moved to make a donation to the chapel, please go to aspenchapel.org. Thank you. And if you'd like to receive these podcasts regularly, subscribe to the Aspen Chapel through Apple, Google Play, YouTube or any other outlet.